So if you're joining us for the first time today, we have been in a series looking together at the life of Abraham. And what we've been doing over the course of this series is we're looking at Abraham as a model of what it looks like to walk with God by faith. What does it look like to live a life of faith and trust in the promise of God? And over the last few weeks in particular, we've been talking about some of the obstacles, some of the threats to a life of faith. In other words, some of those things that will threaten to sabotage our own faith in Jesus and walking with faith in Jesus. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about fear and how fear can sabotage our faith. And uh, a few weeks, uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about doubts and how doubts can uh, sabotage our faith. Last week, we talked about how mistrust in God's promise can lead us to do really stupid things when we try to take matters into our own hands. And today, what we're going to talk about is the threat of cynicism, how cynicism can prove a threat to our life of faith. Now, what is cynicism. Cynicism is, of course, a basic distrust in the motives of people around us. It's the suspicion that you just are not being honest. You're not authentic. You're doing this for a hidden motive. Cynicism is often accompanied by a low-grade despair because what do we have to hope in after all anyway? Everyone's got terrible motives all around us. And it's, it's oftentimes surfaces in, in snarky comments and in criticism and in sarcasm and in ridicule. Uh, this image, I think, captures, captures it well. What do cynical people really want? Well, they want to pop your bubble. Uh, they want to take your hopes and your dreams and all of the things that you are naively hoping in and trusting in, and they want to expose them for the power games that they are and for the, the uh, you know, manipulative, coercive thing that it really is. And this is cynicism. Someone w- described it like this. They said, cynicism is, quote, an embittered disposition of distrust born out of painful disillusionment. Cynicism is an embittered disposition of distrust born out of a painful disillusionment. You know, it's been said that our age is a cynical age. And it's true, you know, the modern age was, uh, was characterized very oftentimes by a great level of confidence in institutions and in science and in progress. And there were these narratives that our culture believed and held to. But in the last several decades, those old narratives have been deconstructed and they have been exposed as power games and institutions have come under great suspicion. And of course, the church is no exception. And I think, uh, you know, at a very practical level, at a very personal level, I think a lot of us in this room have become cynical about the church. You know, what with all of our abusive pastors and our, uh, you know, petty religious people up in arms about all the wrong things, uh, coupled, of course, with all of the kitschy, you know, Christian products out on the markets, right? Stuffed crushed Jesus. That is really, really bad. But, you know, there oftentimes is all of these superficial, very cliche, riddled, you know, kitschy Christian products uh, put forward in a global market economy in order to make more money. 
And of course, we have our shallow music, our superficial worship, our market-driven strategies, our oversimplified theology, our trite sentimentality, and a Christianity that is oftentimes purged of complexity and nuance and darkness and lacking poetry and emotional death, depth. And with all of that, it is difficult not to become cynical sometimes in the church. Can I get a witness? Does anybody ever find themselves growing cynical around the church? I was reading this week an article in Christianity Today about this problem of cynicism, and they pointed out that some of the most cynical people in the local church are pastors. And I can relate to that. And I think the reason for that is you see the underbelly of the church and you get kind of like, you just think like, what are we on about anyway? And it can be discouraging. Now, if you've ever struggled with cynicism, you might find yourself addressed in the story that we're looking at today, because in our story, God addresses a very cynical woman, the wife of Abraham, whose name is Sarah. And she has grown very bitter and cynical regarding the promise of God. And in our story, God addresses her cynicism that is dripping with this sarcastic laughter, and he transforms it into a joy that is marked by genuine trust in the promise of God. And we want to see how she took this journey from cynical and bitter, you know, mistrust to a joyful trust in the promise of God. And my hope today for you all is that if you find yourself at all struggling with a cynical posture toward the church or to other Christians, and even beneath that toward God, my prayer is that God might address you in this story today. Uh, the story picks up in Genesis chapter 18. Now in context here... Uh, Abraham and Sarah have been trying to have a baby for a very long time. Abraham is nearing 100. Sarah is getting very old. It has been 25 years since the original promise of God ha had been made, and the barrenness of Sarah continues. And God, in the face of the barrenness, is insistent that he will work against this barrenness and he will bring a child for Abraham and Sarah. And through this child, he is going to fulfill his purposes for the world. But in spite of the promise, the barrenness persists. And so Abraham, throughout these narratives, are coming, is coming up with creative ways to try to help God out. First, he says, uh, maybe it's through my servant, Eliezer. He can be my heir. And God says, no, it's a child of your very own that's going to be your heir. And then he looks over at Sarah, and he's like, well, she's old. She's clearly not going to have a baby. And he says, uh, no, it's not through Hagar. It's through Sarah that my promise is going to come. But now as we enter our text, it's been 25 years since the promise was uttered and the barrenness persists. And it's here that we meet Abraham on a hot afternoon and it's the heat of the day. And so Abraham does what everyone in the ancient Near East did in the heat of the day. He stops his work, he waits for the sun to cool and he takes a nap. There is almost nothing better than a long nap on a warm afternoon. Can I get a witness on that? And look what the text says. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. And as he sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there were three men standing in front of him. And so Abraham's nap is interrupted. Well, there's nothing better than a long nap on a warm afternoon. There is nothing worse than when your nap is interrupted, right? Amen. I, I say that as a parent. 
So Abraham's napping and he gets this sense that someone is watching. I just think about Luke Skywalker and the Empire Strikes Back when he lands on the Dagobah system and he gets this strange sense that he's being watched and he turns his head and there behind him is the great Jedi master Yoda who says, away, put your weapon, I mean you no harm. Yeah, yeah, you guys remember that? Yeah, sure. Okay, here we go. (laughs) But Abraham has this sense that he's being watched and he looks up and there are these three unexpected travelers and they're weary and they're tired. And the text tells us in verse one what Abraham has yet to discover that the three travelers are no ordinary travelers, but here he is encountering the very presence of God. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God appears in some pretty spectacular ways. He reveals himself in a burning bush to Moses. Uh, He shows himself, his presence is made known through a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to Israel. He appears to Isaiah high and lifted up with his train, filling the temple in Isaiah. But here, God the creator of all things, the maker of heaven and earth, appears to Abraham as a weary traveler in need of food and shelter. Now, the text tells us that there were three visitors, and commentators have speculated about this. Some of the ancient Christian commentators saw in this an allusion to the Trinity. Uh, Some Jewish commentators uh, believed that one of the three messengers was sort of this manifestation in physical form of God himself, while the other two may have been angels. There's some indication that that may be true. But whether or not uh, it's the three or the one, whatever the case, here God's very presence is approaching Abraham. And look at what it says uh, in verse three. It says, and when he saw him, them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. And he bowed himself to the earth and he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So what does Abraham do? do? He does what every righteous person in the ancient world would do when they were confronted with weary travelers. He extends to them gracious and generous hospitality. And he, he, he overpromises, or he underpromises, and he overdelivers. And I don't know if you notice this in the text, but he says, let a morsel of food and a little water be given to you. But look at what he actually does in the text. Abraham went quickly into the tent, and he said to Sarah, quick, Three sias of fine flour. Three sias is six gallons of flour. That's going to make a lot of cake, right? He says, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and he took a calf, tender and good, and he gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared. Do you know how much meat a calf provides? And so he provides an entire calf and, and, and six gallons worth of cake And he set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And so the, the, you know, it's great how it's described. Abraham sees these travelers and he runs into his wife. He says, honey, quick, get up. You know, there's guests at the door. Quick, make the cakes, you know, get the calf, slaughter it, prepare the meal. You know, let's set it before him. And and this frenzy of activity ensues. And we just imagine, you know, this, this ancient Bedouin, you know, family running around and getting this meal prepared. And then all of a sudden the frenetic activity stops. And the weary visitor speaks 
And Abraham discovers that his feast for a king was wiser than he knew. For in the very presence of these weary travelers, he is here in the presence of the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth. Now, why the surprise visit? Why has God come to visit Abraham? Well, the text tells us God has come not to bring a message for Abraham. God has come not for Abraham, but for Sarah to bring a word of promise to Sarah. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, well, she's in the tents. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. You know, earlier in chapter 17, we were told that Sarah, not Hagar, would be the mother of promise. She was told, you are going to bear this son. And now, incredible news. This is a birth announcement. God comes to him and says, look, the baby is going to be born at this time next year. It's like, go get the baby room ready, you know, go get the crib, get the, get the diapers, get ready because the baby is finally going to come. And God comes to him in very person to deliver this very personal news. I mean, could you imagine if you're sitting at home one day, you know, and there's this knock on the door and maybe mom or dad or your roommate or your spouse goes to get the door and they open it and you're like, who's there? They said, it's God and he's got a message for you. This is Abraham and Sarah in this moment. God shows up to deliver this beautiful message of promise. Finally, the baby is going to come. Good news. But how does Sarah respond? Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with her. You know, she has gone through menopause. She is now way, way, way past menopause. And when Sarah hears this news, it says, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? You know, in the original Hebrew, the language is very crass. She says, after I am all dried out and my man is old, I mean, he's, he is, look, look at him. Am I really going to have pleasure? And, and the language in Hebrew, there is sexual pleasure. Is he going to bring me pleasure after all of these years? And she laughs. And this is not a laughter of joy. This is a cynical laughter that is dripping with sarcasm and unbelief and mistrust. Oh, yeah, right. Sure, the promise is going to, is going to come. What is cynicism again? Cynicism is an embittered disposition of distrust born out of painful disillusionment. And that is precisely what we see in Sarah. Sarah is experiencing mistrust. Mistrust in, and she is bitter. And it's all born out of what? Well, if you scratch below the surface of her scorn and her ridicule and her sarcasm and her cynicism, you see a world of pain below the surface and disappointment and heartache. And oftentimes what we see on the surface 
is somebody's ridicule, their scorn, their bitter comments, their negativity, and you think, what gives? What's wrong with you, you know? Just buck up, you know? Be a little bit more positive. But if you scratch below the surface in a lot of our hearts, what you find is deep disappointment. The church let us down. God let us down. We were hoping, we were praying that God would heal the marriage of my parents and they still got a divorce. I've been praying for the prodigal to return and they've not come home. I've been praying for healing and I've not been healed and I'm hurt and I'm disappointed. And it's hard for me to trust. It's hard for me to believe after all of these years. And yeah, I still go to church and yeah, I still on the surface look like I mouth, you know, kind of the religious right cliches, but deep below the surface, what you find is a bitter mistrust and unbelief in the promise of God. And some of you have been there, haven't you? Some of you are there right now. This is where Sarah was at. She laughs. You know, the creator of the universe shows up at her front door with a word of promise, a beautiful word of promise, personally delivered, and she laughs in his face. And how does God respond? Well, let's look at the text. Number one, I want you to see that he gently calls her out. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a son now that I am old? And this is great. As the text goes on, so so God calls her out. He's like, look, I heard you. You know, very often we think that we're saying things and thinking things, or at least we're thinking things that nobody else sees, nobody else can hear, nobody else knows. But of course, God knows, God sees. And very often what he needs to do is to expose us so that the honesty that, or the honest self that is inside our heart, that heartbreak can be broken open and it can be brought under the gaze of God and God can actually deal with it. You know, a a few years ago, I was uh, chopping vegetables at my sister's house and I only had at that time very dull knives. But my sister had a really nice set of very sharp knives. And I was chopping these vegetables and it was going so well. And as I went down, I I inadvertently chopped off the tip of my thumb. And it started to bleed everywhere. And so I wrapped the thing up and then uh, I went over to urgent care to get it taken care of. You know, after you get your thumb wrapped up, you know, at, at first it, it, you're kind of shocked and then you got it wrapped up and it, it feels okay. There's a, a small throb inside. But when you get to urgent care, what are they going to do? They're going to take the thing off and they're going to put some antiseptic spray in there and it's going to hurt more than it did before, right? Anybody else here had that experience? And you don't want it to be uncovered because you know it's going to hurt more, but you know the pain of that your thumb is going to endure is necessary if you're going to be healed. And this is a parable, isn't it? So often, if we want to experience healing from the inside out, we need the inside to be uncovered. And sometimes it can be painful and it can be hard to be open and honest and vulnerable and real about all of the depth of pain in your heart. You'd rather just smooth over it or dole the pain. But if you want to know healing, you've got to be honest with God. 
And so God exposes Sarah. He says, why did Sarah laugh? And then Sarah tries to deny it. She's like, but I, no, I, I didn't laugh. And uh, I love what it says in verse 15. Look what it says. Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> I love that verse. <laughs> oh, but you did laugh, Sarah. I saw you, you know. Do you see how gentle he is? So he confronts our cynicism. But then secondly, I want you to see in our text that he raises a penetrating question. And if you have ever struggled with cynicism in your life, this is the question that God raises to you. Look at what it says in the text. God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? You know, Walter Brueggemann, great Old Testament scholar, uh, he, he, put it, he put it like this. If I, uh, he says, that is a question around which the confrontation revolves. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? He says, this is the question around which this entire confrontation between God and Sarah revolves. It is an open question and one which waits for an answer. It is the question which surfaces everywhere in the Bible. We must say it is the fundamental question every human person must answer, and how it is answered determines everything else. How you answer this question, is anything too hard for the Lord, determines everything else. And so in our remaining moments, I just want us to unpack and explore this question. And I want to just press it home to you a little bit. I want us to think about what this question means. Now, on one level, this is a rhetorical question, isn't it? I mean, God is not asking for information. He's not wondering whether or not anything is too hard for him. He's not saying, look, Sarah, is anything too hard for me? I don't know. Let me know. He is not seeking information. This is a rhetorical question. It's used for dramatic effect. He's making a point not to get an answer. And the point is, of course, nothing indeed is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not some trite or cliche saying. This is not an act of denial. God here is not saying that barrenness is nothing or that it's not real or that it's not painful. And if you stop and think for a minute, what is barrenness? Barrenness, of course, is a situation uh, of, uh, you know, it's a biological place you can be in. But it's also a metaphor. Because what is barrenness? Well, in Sarah's case, it was her inability to produce the very thing she wanted the most. And barrenness is metaphorical for our own lives in those places where we are unable to create and produce the very thing we most long for. I can't get my prodigal to return. I can't heal my marriage that's on the verge of divorce. I can't bring mom and dad back together. 
You know, I can't alleviate this depression. I can't break this addiction. I can't do this thing. And you are in this situation of barrenness. You look around, of course, at the world, and I can't fix this dark and broken and violent world we inhabit. I am unable. We live in a, in a world of barrenness, and we inhabit oftentimes spaces in our own life of barrenness. And the claim that nothing is too hard for God is not a claim that barrenness is not real. The claim is that there is something more real than your barrenness. There is something stronger and more powerful than your experience of barrenness. And the thing that is stronger and more real and more powerful than your situation of barrenness is the power and the strength and the reality of God. God who is infinite bliss and being and power and majesty and glory. God who was who is the infinite sea of existence that called everything else by his own word of power into existence. This is a stronger reality than the reality of barrenness. And so the question comes to us, is anything too hard for God? Can God overcome the barrenness? But let's press it a little bit further. It's not just the question is anything too hard for God? It's not just the claim that nothing is indeed too hard for the creator. But it's more specific and particular than that. It's a question about God's power to accomplish God's promise in the face of all of the barrenness. In other words, God's power is not promised to be at work to fix every ill we have in our life. In other words, this question is not put to us saying like, is anything too hard for God? You know, pray for that car. God can give you a new car. God can give you a million dollars. Nothing is too hard for God. God can heal every sickness and ill. No, that's not what the claim is. The claim is, is that God in his infinite power is able to accomplish his promise to bring healing and restoration in all things in this world. It is God's power ultimately to drive out death and darkness and to wipe away every tear and to swallow up death forever and to flood creation with his own love and to bring the resurrection power of Christ to bear in all of the cosmic order, to bring God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. God's power is at work in God's world to accomplish God's purposes. That's the claim. And so again, the question comes to us, is anything too hard for God? But you know, this isn't just a rhetorical question. It's not just making a point. I think this question is more than rhetoric. I think this question is also a challenge. You know, sometimes when uh, you're in like a small group's training, or maybe you're talking with a mentor or a sibling who's telling you about what to do on your first phone call to him or her that you're going to talk about on your date or whatever, and one of the great pieces of advice is to ask open-ended questions. If you want to draw out your small group, if you want to draw out that significant other, if you want to draw out your teenage son or daughter or granddaughter or grandson, then you need to ask open-ended questions. Tell me about your week. Open-ended question. Tell me a little bit about those things in your life that bring you joy open-ended question. Do you like chocolate ice cream? Close question. That's a close, it stops there. It's a yes or no question. 
I want you to see in our text, what kind of question is this? It's not an open-ended question. It's a closed question. It demands a yes or no response. And he's putting that demand on us. And it's a demand of decision, yes or no. Is anything too hard for God or is it not too hard for God? Yes or no. It's a call to decision. You know, I just want to talk to you very, very personally. If you have come in this morning and you have been wrestling with cynicism and you have been filled with doubts and, and you've got some kind of like those voices of ridicule and scorn and snark that are constantly being thrown at church leaders and at the institutional church and maybe underneath all of that, even at God himself and the whole Christian story and, oh, it's all just a tool of manipulation and control and, oh, they just want your money and, oh, they're so inauthentic and, oh, nobody really cares about people. They just care about themselves. And you've got all of this voices of cynicism. We are faced with a decision. Will we orient our lives around confident and confidence and trust that God really is at work in human lives, in the people's lives around us and in our lives and in even the institutional church in all of its mess? Is God really at work in all of his power there? Or is he not? Is it too hard for God? And at some point, you have to come to a decision and you have to make a choice to orient your life not by your cynical disposition of mistrust. You have to choose to trust in the promise and the power of God. You have to choose to hope. You have to choose joy. You have to choose to live a life of, of there's something beyond here. And listen, I'm not saying that that choice is made in a vacuum. I'm not saying that you just simply have to park your brain at the door and then irrationally make a decision. No, none of that. Like, I, 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 I'm into apologetics. I'm into a defense of the faith. And there's a lot of arguments in favor of the idea that God is and that God is at work in this world. There's the teleological argument. There's the cosmological argument. There's the moral argument. Uh, there's the argument from design. And there's the argument from the historical resurrection of Jesus. There is no shortage of arguments. There's the argument from experience and the argument for the power of the gospel that has transformed the Western world. There's all kinds of arguments. But you know, there's also counter-arguments. And you can spend your entire life simply going back and forth in arguments. Is this true? Is it not true? Can you trust? Can you not trust? But at some point, you have got to make a decision on how you are going to live your life. Are you going to live with hope and with trust? Are you going to orient your life around that? Or are you going to accommodate to the forces of despair and darkness in our culture? Are you going to say, at the end of the day, we are just pacing the cage, and so there is nothing worth doing in life beyond watching another TikTok or YouTube clip or binging another Netflix series or any other bane, menial way in which we can occupy the time we have in this world? Or is there something worth living for that is bigger than ourselves? Is there a holy and transcendent power unleashed and at work in this world? 
that we can actually participate in, that we can experience in our own life. And that power can free us from addictions and that power can free us from our despair and that power can actually bring hope and new life and revitalizations of our, of our, old, of our, of our old desires so that we desire rightly. At some point, you have to make a choice. You know, a story is told, five men who were on an airplane, there was a pilot, a lawyer, and the smartest man in the world, a priest and a Boy Scout. And they were flying along when the plane started to go down. You can tell this is a true story, right? (laughs) They were flying along when the plane started to go down. And noticing that there were only four parachutes, the pilot grabbed a parachute and jumped out. Now, with only three left, the lawyer said, without me, the world would be dull. And so he grabs a parachute and jumps out. And then the smartest man in the world stood up and said, I can't imagine what the world would be like without me. And so he grabs a parachute and jumps out. And the priest turns to the Boy Scout and says, son, I lived my life and I know where I'm going. So you go ahead and take the last parachute. And the Boy Scout replied, calm down, priest. We can both go. The smartest man in the world just took my backpack. (laughs) Listen, the plane is going down. Like all of us have a finite time on this planet. And you have to choose how you are going to live in the short amount of time that you have. And if you choose the path of cynicism, where you're only puncturing everyone else's hopes and bubbles, and you're constantly living with this ridicule and scorn, that is a worthless way to spend your life. But you can choose differently. You can choose to live a life of trust and hope, and the promise of God. Listen, I I know what it's like to struggle with cynicism. I mean, I wrote the introduction to this sermon. Like, I'm familiar with this stuff. But I have made a choice in my life to orient my life not around simply what modern man thinks is possible, And I've chosen to orient my life not around the forces of despair and darkness in this world. I have chosen to orient my life around Jesus of Nazareth and the hope that was born into this world when Christ came in. I have chosen to orient my life around the resurrection of Jesus when God overturned the barrenness of the tomb and burst new life into the world, into this old creation. I've chosen to orient my life around the fact that one day this universe is going somewhere. You know, as Dr. King said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That ultimately the day is coming when the curtain will be pulled back and God will be revealed as the world's true king and Jesus Christ will return and he will establish a kingdom of justice and love and peace and healing in this world. And right now, we can orient our lives around this kingdom. We can build our lives on this hope. Will you? Make a choice. Make a decision. You know, maybe today, before you walk out of this space, maybe even as you prepare to take the Lord's Supper, just sit down and maybe if you've got a notepad or you've got something to write with or you've got a phone, maybe text, just write down, I choose hope. I choose resurrection. 
and I reject the forces of despair and darkness. This time I want to invite our band to come up and we are going to close out our time together around the Lord's Supper. You know, in this practice, one of the things that we see loud and clear before our very eyes is what Sarah eventually discovered. You know, it's interesting, in our, in our, in our text in chapter 18, it's pretty clear that even after the visit of these men, Sarah was struggling with her unbelief. But by the time you get to chapter 21, you realize that not everything depends upon the faith and trust and the belief and the obedience of Sarah. Because Sarah gets pregnant in spite of her unbelief. That new life begins to be birthed in the midst of that old barren womb. And of course, 2,000 years ago, in spite of the unbelief and the disobedience of humanity, new life was birthed in the midst of this old barren world, in the womb of Mary, and in the incarnation of Jesus into this world. And that new life was taken and crucified and put in a tomb, an old barren tomb. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead because ultimately barrenness will not have the final word. Our great God and Father, we come to you now. And even as you heard what was going on in the secret heart of Sarah in that tent, so God, you see what's going on in our own secret hearts. And I just pray, God, that even now as we come to the table, that just as your word of promise came to Sarah in her moments of despair and mistrust, I pray, God, that as we come to the table, that you would come to us now and reaffirm your word of promise in all of those places of mistrust and despair in our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.